come up here to kind of set the tone. I always play a couple of patriotic songs on my speakerphone. And it just gives me inspiration for what I'm really out here for. Sometimes music can do something that the spoken word can't do. That's me and a friend of mine from way back, William Thorpe, talking at the former site of Silent Sam. Great to see everyone. See everyone here. Everyone from Carroll? Yes. Middle yes. school? Yes. Okay. So what soldier am I representing? Confederate or the Union? Union. Union soldier. So I'm standing here in the former site of the Confederate soldier. My question really to the university that had a Confederate statue here for 105 years is where is the, on this campus, is the image for the Union soldier. That's, I'm asking that as a question because all problems that you ever have in life are solved through the process of questions and answers. So that's why I say ask as many questions as you can because that's how we solve problems. All right, thank you. This is Recollecting Chapel Hill, community history from the inside out and the bottom up. I'm Danita Mason-Hogans. And I'm Molly Luby. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at a Confederate monument that's brought this small town to national attention. This week, 300 protesters toppled the monument, which has been viewed as a symbol of racism and white supremacy. Sam no longer on his pedestal at UNC Chapel Hill. Hundreds of protesters cheered so him. We had a slow version of a revolution last night on our Starship campus in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And what's next? Until recently, it sat at the front of the university campus, looking over the town of Chapel Hill. When student activists tore down Silent Sam, they were participating in an old argument. What is the meaning of the American Civil War? At issue are really essential questions about truth, about history, about our collective memory. There's a lot to talk about. And that's why we're devoting our next three episodes to Silent Sam. But we're not going to be telling a straight history of Silent Sam. That history, that's been written. We want to hear the untold stories behind the written history. We're going to be sharing the voices of our community who lived under the watchful gaze of the Confederate statue and all that statue represented. We'll learn how the civil rights movement shifted attitudes among young Chapel Hillians throughout the 1960s and how that then led to the first large protest at Silent Sam in 1971. But the story of that protest and the events that led up to it, that's going to be in episode two. And in episode three, we will take stock of where we are now. We are also bringing in Klaus Meyer, one of our associate producers. Hello. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> Hello. What is a good way to... Klaus is a student at UNC, and we were so lucky to have him out in the field 
listening to community members and students talk about Silent Sam and their experiences, as well as digging through audio archives and old newspapers to learn more. As a student at UNC, this is something that uh, I hear about just about every day on campus. Um, and a lot of what I learned reinforced some of the stuff that I learned um, through the amazing work that has been done to tell the story of Silent Sam in the last uh, decade or so. Um, but a lot was uh, more based in personal experience that um, in many cases sort of uh, surprised me or at least added some nuance to my understanding of this uh, this monument. One of the people I got to talk to was James Britt when he showed me around the neighborhood where he grew up. My, my perspective from years ago, since I had to walk across that campus uh, periodically and look at stuff, uh, we'd purposely go down that side and come back up this side, the, um, the north side of Franklin Street, just make a circle. But where I was going with that, because we, what we used to also do was go down to the, um, one of our favorite things was to go down to the planetarium, and, and uh, you had the planet room and all that kind of stuff in the dark. You could steal a kiss from your girlfriend and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the standard for a teenager. And uh, then we'd come on back up, we'd grab some more ice cream at Sutton's or somewhere. You know, you couldn't sit in there and eat it, but you could buy it, you know, the cherry Cokes was off the chair. So that monument on UNC's upper quad was not as much an object of concern as it came to be later in James's life, when the community's relationship with it really started to change. But we'll get to that soon. First, I think with any monument, it's important to try to understand uh, what the people who put it there were thinking. So that's why we talked to William Sturkey, who is a history professor at UNC and uh, an expert on race in the American South. He told us some about the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is the group behind Silent Sam. So the Daughters of the Confederacy was a neo-Confederate organization formed in the 1890s and spread throughout every single state in the South. And they are largely responsible for helping erect many of the Confederate monuments that appeared between 1890 and 1920. And they were also very active in schools, in terms of promoting certain history books, in terms of celebrating the Confederacy, advancing this lost cause that the Civil War was a just cause for the South. And, you know, much of what they were able to do um, was in the name of white supremacy. And the reason that we say that now, it's not because we're applying retroactively standards from today to the past. It's because that's precisely what they said in their own words. And so, for example, they published a book about the Ku Klux Klan and celebrating the Ku Klux Klan for helping promote white supremacy in the South through violence. We present some brief excerpts from the Ku Klux Klan or Invisible Empire by the United Daughters of the Confederacy member, Mrs. S.E.F. Rose. This book is dedicated by the author to the youth of the Southland hoping that a perusal of its pages will inspire them with respect and admiration for the Confederate soldiers who were the real Ku Klux and whose deeds of courage and valor have never been surpassed and rarely equaled in the annals of history. This book goes out to the world with a mission to perform, to bring these truths of history directly to the youth of our land. The author prays that its mission will be accomplished. The attractive illustrations and true history should make interesting reading for young and old and for all of those who hold the glorious deeds of our Southern heroes in everlasting remembrance. The Negro considered freedom synonymous with equality and his greatest ambition was to marry a white wife. 
The South was soon under what is known as the carpetbag regime. Men without principle were in power, and Negroes, already demoralized by their freedom, were elevated to the highest positions. The black and tan government, composed of Republican carpetbaggers, homemade Yankees or scalawags, and ignorant and brutal Negroes, now held full sway. Union leagues, whose members were mainly Negroes and the lowest element of whites, were hotbeds for engendering race strife and Negro equality and plans to place the black heels on the white necks. So the Confederate soldiers, as members of the Ku Klux Klan and fully equal to any emergency, came again to the rescue and delivered the South from a bondage worse than death. This book was unanimously endorsed by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1913. In cooperation pledged to endeavor to secure its adoption in the schools and to place it in the libraries of our land. 1913. That was the year Silent Sam was erected. Here's William Sturkey once again. So it doesn't take a great leap of logic by any means to shine a light on their mission and their values because we have it right there in all the documents that they produce. I mean, what they do, I think, very clearly is that they, um, they protect one people's version of history at the expense of others. And so what they do is they prop up local white people's history at the expense of African-American history. And what that does is, of course, it overlooks the real disadvantages that enslaved African-Americans had that segregation created for African-Americans. And, you know, it, it sort of doesn't allow for this sense of pride um, for African-Americans to have, you know, even considering all the things that, all the disadvantages that they had. There's a reason that we don't have old buildings on campus named after black people. It's not because black people are innately inferior or were innately inferior 150 years ago. It's because they weren't allowed to contribute. But we do know many of the ways that they did um, black people were essential to the town of Chapel Hill and especially to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Without them, the, the university would not have begun or thrived in its early years in the way that it did because they didn't have a choice. They were people that embodied the wealth that helped undergird the start of the university as enslaved Americans. It's a... Uh... It's, it's long been a symbol, I think, of, of um, control and power. Um, and, you know, I'm, sh I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Wint speech, I call it. From where we stand, less than 90 days perhaps after my return from Appomattox, I horsewhipped a Negro wench until her skirts hung in shreds because upon the streets of this quiet village, she had publicly... So from the very beginning, it's represented violence and, and power. My name is Anna Richards, and I am president of the Chapel Hill Carborough NAACP. It was intended to be an intimidation factor. It was intended to say, um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation may be signed, and you all may be quote, free, but we're still in charge. I think, you know, a lot of people are hesitant to talk about it, people that have lived here a long time. The relationship with the university is a very um, curious, I'll say curious one, with the community. 
people had to maintain a certain posture to, to feed their families and keep their jobs. I don't know whether it's true now, but we used to be so easily persuaded that what they wanted for us was good. Didn't do much investigating that I know of. Didn't do a lot of being curious about where you're coming from, how, what makes you think this would work for us. It was just if they said it, must be okay. That's Vivian Fushi. She's one of a group of women who've been meeting at the library to document their own histories. These fabulous women have contributed so much to the local civil rights movement in Chapel Hill. Not a lot is known about the collective movement that they were part of. So for the last few months, we've been sitting down in the library once a week to talk about Chapel Hill, how it was when they were younger, how Lincoln High School was developed. Some of them attended Orange County Training High School and how that evolved into a community who was very much self-determined to have a say in civil rights, justice, and equality in Chapel Hill. You'll also hear from Juanita Alston, Betty Gear, Edna Taylor, Esper Foster, and Patricia Mason. In the 1950s, Chapel Hill was very segregated, very. It, and you go to a store, there was a fountain that said colored and white. If you went to UNC hospitals, there was a colored waiting room and a white waiting room. You certainly room. did not talk back. No, yeah. nobody. Uh-huh. And that was, the protection part of that was so that if we were to go out, you know, somebody, somebody was could, could tell yeah. us and not, we couldn't, uh, they, they were trying to protect us from whites mm -hmm. in the sense that they tried to make sure we knew the right things to, to do. do. Yeah. So if we encountered mm -hmm. the white people, yeah. that, you know, we wouldn't sass them, we wouldn't right. do those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But, I, I mean, I think they had lived so much in terror and fear mm -hmm. that... They didn't want that for us, and that was their best method of keeping us in line. Mm -hmm. And then families. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, we had seen the decade of the 50s uh, being in Chapel Hill, a reaction to what happened with Emmett Till and Brown versus the Board of Education. So the 60s ushered in a town in Chapel Hill where the Vickers family was trying to desegregate the school system. The Chapel Hill Nine had staged the first sit-in and protests were happening on a weekly basis. So this is a real different time for people in Chapel Hill. Everybody say your name. And you know, where you went to high school, what year you graduated? You wanna start, Mike? Yes, I'm Michael Fushi. I am a native of Chapel Hill. I graduated from Chapel Hill High School in 1973. Yes, I'm um, Edric Cotton. Uh, I'm a native of Chapel Hill. I graduated from Chapel High School in 1970. Uh, Jerry Neville, uh, born in Carver, North Carolina. Uh, graduated from Chapel Hill High School in 1974. I sat in on a conversation with Mike, Edric, and Jerry inside the Chapel Hill Historical Society back in August. They were young kids in the early days of the direct action civil rights struggle. 
all with older brothers and sisters active in the movement. It was their generation that absorbed the blows of school desegregation, very real and very personal blows whose force can be traced directly back to the efforts of the United Daughters of the Confederacy to spread their version of history, that lost cause mythology, among the youth of the Southland. And we're going to follow their history in the next two episodes through the civil rights movement and into the 1970s to understand how Silent Sam really came to be a focal point for civil rights activism. Here, they candidly shared some early memories of learning what it means to be black in this southern part of heaven. Uh, On the corner of uh, Greensboro and Main Street was uh, Andrews and Rigsby's grocery store. Right beside it was Hearn's. And I remember being in the Hearn's grocery store with my mom. And when we got to the checkout counter, the lady cashier looked over my mother's shoulder and asked if she could help this white guy. And the white guy looked at her and says, well, she was in front of me. And the cashier responded, oh, I didn't see her. And I was I was pretty, I was young. But I remember that. Yeah. I didn't know what it was about. Mm-hmm. But uh, my mother told that story to, to a lot, too. So, enough, so I went to um, a white preschool, and I was the only black kid there. And um, only, and none of the white kids played with me during recess. Nobody played with me during recess. I've never forgot that. The racism starts long before uh, pre uh, kindergarten. It actually starts in preschool. Center drugstore had the best milkshakes in, in the world. They cost a quarter. Some hot summer day, you could go in and get a milkshake, but you couldn't sit down. So this one particular day, I went in there. I was by myself ordered my milkshake while I was waiting on them to make it there. Five or six teenage white boys hanging around. And when I walked in, they went, <laughs> what's that I smell? Yeah. And uh, so I just got my milkshake and I left. So that was actually when they integrated all the schools, I think it was in 1966. Exactly. They made your old Lincoln High School into a all sixth grade school, which I that was that was the year I went there. I was a very good math student. I mean, very good. But see, when I went in the sixth grade at, at Lincoln Elementary, they put me in the fourth group in math. Okay, and so I brought it to the teacher's attention, and they said, "Okay, we're gonna change it." They didn't change it, and so, so I got. I got, I was, I'm grown, I thought. <laughs> so I got pissed. And so I used some profanity. I just got, I used some profanity. And so I was sent to the office and all that, and I told them why I use it and why, why you know, I mean, why should I be sitting here in this classroom like this? And, 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 and I was told, you black guys need to just, you know, why y'all act up like this? You know? Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, so that was my first introduction, actual introduction to that, that prejudice stuff, you know, that kind of stuff like that.
it was during this time, at the height of school desegregation in Chapel Hill and really throughout the South, when Silent Sam was first criticized in writing. On March 17, 1965, just 10 days after Bloody Sunday, that fateful day when Alabama state troopers attacked unarmed civil rights marchers with billy clubs and tear gas outside Selma, Alabama, the Daily Tar Heel, UNC's campus paper, published a letter from student Al Reebok. Reebok said, quote, The existence on the UNC campus of a monument to the men who were militant white supremacists and extremists of the worst kind is no less an affront to the Negro peoples than is the gaudy Confederate flag flying from the lily-white dome of Alabama's capital. But with the exception of a few articles in response to Reebok, it still took some time for the community's relationship with Silent Sam to change. Once again, here's James Brett. In the South, you just know that there's several places you're going to see that. Regardless of how you like it, you know there it is. Uh, Your feeling is always there pertaining to it, but until somebody decides to make an issue out of it, if all of a sudden there was a Klan rally or something else of that sort, then basically we just kind of like, okay, we already know what you feel about that. Usually everything was kind of like, okay, we're going to try to coexist. And everything was usually fine until one of those kinds of things happened. And then all of a sudden, all the white folks would get upset and here come them troublemakers. Those troublemakers James Britt was talking about? Well, in the final couple of years of the 1960s, the youth who were born into the Jim Crow South, raised on the civil rights movement, and who desegregated our schools were ready to take matters into their own hands. The civil rights movement ushered into a new movement in Chapel Hill where young people were challenging the status quo and challenging the way things had become. So now they had younger brothers and sisters too. And so they were kind of ensconced in the knowledge that things were not right, and they were determined that they were not going to take it. Edric Cotton was one of the leaders of the so-called riot at Chapel Hill High School in 1968 when black students shut down the school. The National Guard was even called in to restore order. This protest had been simmering since the closure of the all-black Lincoln High School in 1966, when black students were forced to give up their school, their mascot, their principal, their coaches, and their trophies. The students had demands. They wanted their teachers and coaches back. They wanted the name of their team, the Tigers, back, and they wanted a black history class. They used the threat of a football boycott to force the school administration to meet those demands. Edric, who was an all-star football player, tells the story. I was there, and I was the main leader who actually led them to the office. It was not about fighting up, beating up anyone. It was a peaceful protest following Dr. King's lead. That's what it was all about. It was never about, I never had to, I never struck anybody. I just went there, we, 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 we sung our songs and stuff, you know, uh, and, and made the demand. And, and we meant it that we were not going to play uh, sports. We were not going to participate uh, until they met our demand. And they did meet our demand. And, and they punished me big time. His coach attempted to force Edric to resign from the football team. He called me to the office, you know, after the so-called riot. He called me to the office and said, Edric, I would like for you to resign the team. He just said what he said to me. I want you to resign 
And I said, um, because you, we have never, this is Coach Corden, I had never had a player that actually demand the players to do what you wanted them to do. You control this team. If I kick you off this team, uh, uh, it's going to be be rioting, you know, and he said, so I'm asking you, uh, you've already made the all-star team, but I want you to resign from the team because I don't have any control of this team. You control this team. You control the school. Everybody's afraid of you. Um, and, and I said, Coach, I'm not, I'm, you're going to have to kick me off. I'm not resigning anything. You know, you're going to have to kick me off this team. Um, doing that whole year. Uh, I was punished big time doing that whole year. Oh, Mike Fushi was a few years behind Edric, but he saw what was going on at the high school and led a similar protest at Guy Pete Phillips. Up until I was in the ninth grade, they had no black cheerleaders. Not one. They had all these black athletes, but no black cheerleaders. And so what happened is, just like Edric did, when he was saying that he wasn't going to play if uh, they didn't have any uh, black representatives in the teaching, coaches coaches and stuff like that. And teachers. And teachers. teachers. So we did the same thing. But we are not going to go ahead and play unless y'all redo it. And They they, they were trying to stamp, "Mm -mm," you know. So what happened is they gave two. And we said, that's not enough. <laughs> We're just good. That's not enough. It's a third population right here of us at this school. So we need to, you know, to redo it. Because we, we refused to play. It was football. We refused to play. And so they redid it. And so, so what they did is they said um, they added two more white students and three black. And said, we did your third. I wasn't satisfied. I said, why do you have to add two more white people? Why did you say? <laughs> you know? But I was satisfied. You know, I was, you know. But I got blackballed from there for. I got blackballed. Oh, yeah. And so we were benched. Benched. They sacrificed losing. Losing, I think, with eight straight games to let me come in in some way late in the second quarter, you know, to get, teach me a lesson. That was very damaging. I mean, I remember that all my life up until adult. That was very damaging. The years leading up to 1970 were really formative ones for black youth in Chapel Hill. They had been raised in the civil rights movement. They witnessed the power of civil disobedience as young children, and they exercised their right to protest in the face of injustice. And what that did was enter into a new phase of Black consciousness, um, which was the foundation of Black power, which also was the foundation of Black political power in Chapel Hill. What happened next? Now, when you start talking about this situation with Kate, you had what was um, the black student movement, which was what drew a lot of the other things later on. That was kind of like the lightning rod. Next time on Recollecting Chapel Hill. In 1970, A young man, born and raised in Chapel Hill, described by his friends as a lover and not a fighter, was murdered. No one was held to account for that murder and how that led a community to gather for the first time in large numbers at Silent Sam. So this episode is dedicated to Mrs. Jean Thorpe, 
who along with Von Seal Farrington was the first teacher of an integrated classroom in Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools. A woman who had a smile for every child, a hug for every day, and an appreciation for how children should show each other kindness and concern. We love you, Ms. Thorpe, and Chapel Hill will certainly miss you. Jean Thorpe died on September 12th of this year. Her son, William Thorpe, was the Union soldier we heard from in the beginning of this episode. Visit us at chapelhillhistory.org to view our sources for this episode and to learn more about the history of Confederate monuments. While you're there, you can subscribe to the podcast. We hope you do. From the Chapel Hill Public Library and the town of Chapel Hill, I'm Danita Mason-Hogans. And I'm Molly Luby. And I'm Klaus Meyer. And And this this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. Hill. Save it, brotherhood.